Good afternoon. This is Bakes, Kevin Baker with Bakes Takes. Welcome to my podcast. This is for the week ending Saturday, June 27th. Uh, first, President Biden, I don't know if I should use a question mark or an exclamation point. We'll talk about that. Uh, energy prices, wild ride. I'm responding to a question that I have from one of Jack's friends, uh, my son, and he's a new uh, Exxon employee down in Houston. So I get to revisit a lot of my Houston connections. And now for something completely different, uh, I'm a uh, juvenile Monty Python fan. I'm watching the Netflix special. And uh, fun fact, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd finance the Holy Grail. I find it interesting. I hope you do. And uh, you're welcome. There'll be much levity uh, at the end of, uh, of the show. First of all, uh, I want to thank Mike, uh, my producer, um, especially for the Father's Day edition. My, that was if you a good see one. It, uh, you know, I love my boys. It was fun having them in here. And it was, I know it was extra logistics and work, <laughs> but I really appreciate it. I think it was, it, it was terrific. Uh, and I miss them. So, um, it was a great father's day and now I've got to get uh, down to business, but yep. thank you for everything as always. You're very welcome. Um, all right. First of all, Bakes take, uh, my first segment is reporters of the week. And this is uh, from Randall Forsyth, who I seem to quote just about every week. But his column lends itself to this. It, he's in Barron's and a very thoughtful guy. Um, and he, uh, in one paragraph, uh, he talks about the percentage of gains from the lows, up 38% for the S&P uh, since March 23rd. The Nasdaq composite up 46%. And the Russell 2000 uh, index up 43%. And those are all facts. But I... I, for one, didn't sit there with bated breath and buy stocks with both hands August 20th, I mean, sorry, March 23rd and March 24th, and I doubt you did. So, yes, those are what, that's what the chart shows, but the number of people that have those gains sitting in their portfolios, I think, is really, really rare, if, you, if we're going to be intellectually honest. So, I like to take a step back and say, yes, the bounce is great. Uh, I don't know if it's a bear market rally or it's the beginning of a bull. I honestly don't. The volume to me, I know I'm beating a dead horse again. The volume to me, this pink volume that you see on the chart, uh, it picks up on the down days and it recedes on the up days. And I don't like it. So that's it. Um, but price is what you cash in. But bottom line, it, I, I'll just t touch upon one indice, one of the indexes, one of the indices. You're going to fix that, right? Um the S&P 500, it's down 4.5% year to date. That, you know, it's not horrible, but it isn't making money, and that's what we're doing this for. So I doubt many of you bought at the low, and I would just caution about uh, the short-term nature of a lot of commentary out there that's focusing on as if you picked up that falling knife on March 23rd. There we go. Uh, uh, ben Levison, uh, who I also seem to quote a great deal, talked about the uh, in his column and also on his terrific show that he does with other Barron's folks on Friday afternoons on the Fox Network, talked about the Fed and limiting future uh, payouts of the banks. Uh, bottom line is that they're, they're going to do a look back and look at the last four quarters of earnings, and that will be the amount that they can pay out as, as dividends. And needless to say, we're going to have a lousy quarter in 2Q, COVID-related, and it's going to bring the earnings uh, power down for that period of time, and thus dividend payouts become suspect, especially for Wells Fargo. And now maybe that's all baked into the stocks, but it's something to, to pay attention to as, as we go forward. Uh, on Friday, we had 
cases go up. Uh, 7.8 percent in uh, uh, in Florida, uh, 5.4 percent in Arizona, 11.8 uh, percent positive rate. Obviously, this is COVID I'm talking about in Texas. And uh, uh, the Texas governor, Greg Abbott, issued an executive order rolling back parts of the state's reopening. Too little, too late, in many people's opinion. Florida, for its part, is banning alcohol in bars. I thought that was kind of the point of bars, so I don't know what we're doing there. And you sure not making money as a bar owner doing that. But I just think it calls into question the, the amount of recovery that, that's coming back. We'll talk about this uh, later in the show, but I just point that out as things that they talked about on this show. Um, Clifton Hill, a portfolio manager at Acadian, said the market is worried about a second outbreak. I almost think they're worried about the the reacceleration of the first outbreak because then we're then we're already talking, especially Fauci is about a real second outbreak meaningfully in the fall. So, uh, and I hate chasing these 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 shadows, but they move stocks, and so that's part of the game right now. Uh, Biden's lead in the polls. This is fun. Uh, he's leading Trump. It's uh, been widening over the last month. Real Clear Politics has him a 10-point favorite right now. And uh, uh, Trump's approval rating is the uh, at the lowest levels of his presidency. Betting markets, like predicted uh, in early June, had Trump well ahead. Now they have him as a 21-point underdog to, to Biden. And I thought this was fascinating by uh, Sarah Bianchi. If the election were held today, we believe Vice President Biden would win as part of a Democratic sweep. So the two houses, representatives, Congress, and the, the president, uh, you know, and that would be that would be uh, uh, that would royal markets, in my belief, at least certainly lend itself to volatility. This was kind of cool. Uh, I looked at this because I always like to test my 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 biases, and I've always said that 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 stocks pick the presidency, and this is a wonderful example of this. So I played with this. The uh, FDR, the, he's the top chart. That's the, re- the stock returns while he was there. He's the GOAT. He's the greatest of all time. He took over in, uh, uh, in 1932 with the Dow at 42, and then he had a five-bagger in, uh, in, 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 uh, in five years. The, and so he, needless to say, that's why he has the longest amount of terms of any president, three-plus, died in his fourth term, I believe. Check on that, Mike. I think I got that right. Um, his Trump, he's the next line below. His returns are positive in the first term. And then I plugged in Jimmy Carter, Richard Nixon, Herbert Hoover. The stock returns are negative during their presidency, and thus they only have one term. I, it got a little busy, but when you put in Reagan, Obama, Clinton, they all had two terms because the stock market was acting well during their presidency. I think the commentary about Biden being bad for the market. I think if the stock market's down, Biden's the president, and, and we're going to unleash that pent-up anger against our wallet and against Trump, and it's going to be felt at, at the ballot box. So we'll talk about that more right now. It's, it's fascinating that Trump is still up. The stock market is up in, in Trump's term, but his poll results are, are lousy for a whole host of reasons for another show besides mine. Now, um, I'm obviously a technical guy. I like charts. This is uh, the the breakout after the election. For some reason, a lot of people thought the market would swoon with Trump being president. How a commercial real estate developer 
uh, from New York is is worse for the market than a lifetime uh, uh, politician is beyond me. But there we are. So the market took off after his election from 220. And by the way, that's why we pay attention to these levels. During the 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 swoon uh, from February to March 23rd, what did we do? We came down and tested that base at 220. So now we've bounced to 300 or so, 3,000 on the S&P. I'm talking about the SPY now. Bottom line is his poll results are lousy with the market up. If it gets close to 220 and turning negative, he is toast. So you heard it here. Um, Andy Laperrier, the head of U.S. policy research at Cornerstone Macro, Macro, uh, created a so-called Biden portfolio. He's a very good guy, I believe, but my knee-jerk reaction was to go back to 1994. We killed so many trees and spent so many hours we'll never get back in our lives on conference calls talking about Hillary coming in with Bill and, and crushing health care, and we, we, nothing happened. They didn't pass anything. They didn't affect the stocks, and it was just a big waste of time. So if you, I understand why the strategists do it. It's a reason for them to get on TV and talk. But all this, this, this uh, drive to go long infrastructure plays, short big tech because they want to break up uh, Facebook and things like this, uh, I, I, I doubt very seriously it works. And I would not spend a lot of time on those, quote unquote, Biden portfolios. Uh, if there's a Democratic sweep, Le Perrier expects higher volatility. And I think that makes sense because the, the increased taxes that he's proposing and the regulation that's sure to follow is going to be perceived as a negative, and uh, I think that's going to feel its way in the volatility uh, ETFs like the the VXX, the VAXY, and the VAXM. The VAXY has not worked the short term, but I think it's going to between now and um, uh, the election. So, oh, and that brings up a good point. I, it's month end, it's quarter end, and I get to do one of my favorite things. I go through 1,700 plus charts and research the heck out of them and find out you know what is looking promising for the back half of the year i'll report back next week i'm about a third of the way through it now um in the same article from ben he talks about bulls having in their favor a very supportive fed and then the the uh health uncertainties about treatments vaccines and um uh, and, and testing and on any given day, the news is going to bring these wildly. I think when you have major surprises to consensus on any of these, it's going to drive volatility higher. It's already started to happen. And I think by, by November, we're going to make some money with, uh, with volatility trades. So stay tuned. I just talked with John Petridis on the right, right over here. He's a uh, portfolio manager at Tocqueville Asset Management. Uh, great guy. Uh, but I like this quote that he had. The future is looking past COVID. The president is dealing with COVID and the, the uh, uh, sorry, the president is dealing with COVID and the past is explaining what COVID has done. You know, and, and uh, over the, the trading days, we're going to have news that moves all those around dramatically. Uh, New York City just rescinded their, their opening of uh, indoor dining. And I think the volatility is going to continue. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, this is a, a cartoon in The Economist, and I like The Economist because it is 
otherworld-centric uh, or certainly more open and has uh, better reach into foreign markets than, than our U.S. press normally has. And I just thought this was a great way to encapsulate China and all of the, the tensions that they face and create that could play into volatility down the road. India, we'll talk about that. They have military skirmishes going there. They just put in a very onerous, open-ended, vague law in Hong Kong that enables the mainland uh, Chinese government to arrest people virtually at will. Um, In the South China Sea, we've talked about this. There's been skirmishes with U.S. ships, Malaysian ships, Filipino ships uh, regarding oil and and different uh, interests that they have and, and contend um, uh, contest in in the South China Sea and uh, Taiwan, which they which has been a you know a, a, a decades long uh, strife in, in in Taiwan. So I'm not going to be shocked if we pick up a paper. Uh, the Economist tends to put things on on you know page 10, 12, 17, and then all of a sudden something flares up and they show up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. And I think this might be something out there that I want you to be aware of. I don't have a cartoon for it from The Economist or anybody else, but uh, North Korea and South Korea are having escalating tensions again. North Korea blew up some military uh, uh, property in in South Korea and uh, near the DMZ. So that's uh, an area to watch as well. Uh, On June 15th, there was a brutal clash between the uh, Indians and Chinese. Details are sketchy. At least 20 Indian soldiers died, many after tumbling into an icy river. India says the Chinese also suffered casualties. China says little, as usual. Uh, but the death toll is worst of, of any clash between the two since 1967, and it's the first loss of, of life since 1975. And I would be surprised if this is the, the last we hear of, uh, of this turmoil. I wish The Economist attributed the authors uh, because they're terrific writers, very well-turned phrases, and this is how they close out this story. Uh, This is a reckless way to fix problems between two rising nuclear powers that are a home to a third of humanity. It's a pretty powerful sentence, and I didn't realize that, but it's a fact when when you think about it. And then the last thing the wider world needs is an escalating slugfest between a dragon and an elephant over a lofty patch of frozen earth, and no truer words were said. And I like uh, an elegant phrase, so there we go. Um, Mike, anything for me? Any questions or anything? I agree. I think that, uh, you know, I, I love the phrases. I was laughing a little bit over here when you were reading them. I mean, to think that, you know, when you said a reckless way to fix problems between two rising nuclear powers that are home to a third of humanity. I, yeah, that... that uh, I. It didn't even put it into context until you read yeah, that. I, 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 you know, we don't think about that over here is how significant that population is worldwide yeah. to us, you yeah. know, and what it means. So it's just, I thought those were great. And uh, it's interesting that The Economist doesn't attribute the authors. I don't know why. It drives yeah. me crazy. Because I'd love to, I, I, I try to give attribution to everybody because I really appreciate their work. Well, I'm sure The Economist listens to this podcast. And when they do, they're going to hear this and they'll probably change their policies. There we go. There right. we go. The way yeah. the good Lord intended. Yep. Uh, this is also in the, in the Economist, and I was surprised at the severity of this. Uh, uh, investors' love affair with commercial property is ending, and uh, you know, the banks report losses with a lag and with with limited detail. But the commercial mortgage-backed securities market, the CMBS, they're basically bundles of loans sold on capital markets. 
they provide a barometer. And look at this spike. I mean, I knew it was going to go up, but I didn't know it would go up as fast and through the 2010-11 highs the way it has. Um, uh, a fifth of debt payments on shopping properties are late. A quarter of those due on lodgings, including student housing, vacant uh, since the, the colleges and universities are closed. They've also been skipped. And uh, this is something worth watching. And uh, This is, this is going to have a big impact, right? I, I believe so. And we've talked about it in the past, and I'm, I'm going through the charts again today, uh, it has to be bad for obviously the real estate mm-hmm. that the mortgages are you know support, and then the banks that lent on the properties. It has to be bad for them. Well, this is reminiscent of the the housing crash, you know, back in two thousand eight, was it? You know, when I mean a lot of the mortgages started to fall apart, people started to get you know become homeless. I saw a lot yeah, of evictions coming you, up. I don't think you have some of the those speculative excesses where you had. Uh, you know, like the movie The Big Short. Right, uh, the, the balloon. Uh, you know, people having, you know, four houses with almost no right. equity in them. And that was a great alli- movie, by the way. It was a great movie. Yeah. And alligators in the pools. And, and, and uh, I, I don't think we're, we're there. I just think that... The, well, that, the, one was, that one was inflated synthetically. You know what I mean? I feel like this one is happening because there's a national crisis and we just weren't prepared to deal with it. So, I mean, you've got people who are going to lose their homes, who are going to default on mortgages, and that's going to just build and build and build i mean i can't imagine that's going to get better by the end of the year the house the the residential housing market so far is looking pretty good holding on huh i'm amazed wow. i'm amazed uh and i'll go into that because i've yeah. got some some anecdotes that maybe color my thinking and i just want to be honest with people about you know why i think the way i do um again i'm going to go through the etf charts looking for the 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 short financials and the short real estate to see what we have there uh Howard Marks uh, from Oak Tree Capital, his note is fantastic. I read everything that he, that he puts out. And he, he didn't put it together like this, but I uh, put all his positives and his negatives side by side. And I thought it was just a great, sober way to acknowledge the, the good things that are going on and the bad. All right, I, the biggest one is the Fed, basically saying we're going to do everything we can to keep the the corporate bond mer- bond market working the government bond market working i think tacitly they say we're going to make stocks not go down maybe not build, they can't buy them directly but they sure seem to get vocal when when stocks get get wobbly um, but then on the other side you have the political and financial restraints that that so far haven't shown up but could uh, defaults and bankruptcies despite what the fed does if you can't pay off your movie theater or your student housing uh, uh, loan because you, your students aren't showing up to, to do it, it the, you know, whether the Fed charges uh, a funds rate of zero or eight, it almost doesn't matter. There's no cash flow to cover the, the, the loans. Uh, inflation, I got a question from a, a, a fan about this. We'll talk about it. Uh, and this seems to be way off in the future. But if that does become an issue, it could creep into, into uh, capital markets. Uh, a downgrade of of uh, the U.S. government, given the debt that they're taking on. I don't think anybody's expecting that right now. But if that came out of left field, that would be a negative. So I just want to say the Fed is very powerful. And, and so far, it seems to be in control of this. But there are things that they can't control. And uh, it, it's a tug of war. Right now, they're, they're winning the tug of war. 
the COVID curve is flattened mostly in most places, but then we have the specter of a second wave either now or coming in, in the fall, the way it was talked about originally. The healthcare system has not been swamped. It's been very resilient, but could future stress and fatalities, Texas seems to be filling up, uh, you know, could that be a negative headline that, that, that creates some, some uh, angst? Vaccines, treatments, and tests, there's 100-plus that are going on right now. Uh, Pfizer has some good news out on, uh, on their vaccine right now. But, uh, and I followed up with, with um, uh, Jeff Porges on this and Jack Howe, because uh, uh, Porges is a, is, Jeff is a very thoughtful biotech analyst, and I could have sworn he said the last time around that any vaccine is coming in 2022 just because of the safety requirements of the FDA and the logistics of getting vaccines to millions of people. So uh, be cautious about about getting too excited about, I'm hearing too many people say there's going to be a vaccine by the end of the year. That seems implausible. Uh, The ability to look through COVID-19, so all these horrible earnings reports, quote, aren't going to matter. Positive economic news is on on the plus side. Uh, retail sales and unemployment surprised coming off of horrible numbers, but they surprised to the upside, to be fair. But then in 2Q, GDP is going to be down 30%. You're still going to have 10% unemployment, plus it looks like return to work is slow from what I hear. And by the way, let's make this interactive and crowdsourced. I want to hear what you're seeing. Are you going back to school? Uh, are you taking a year off? Uh, have you closed your business? Uh, I know of, 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 of two that are gone forever, not employing hundreds of people, but employing dozens, and they're gone, and they're not coming back ever. So it is happening in the real world. State and city finance has got to be a joke, uh, given what's going on with unemployment and, and, and lost tax revenue. We talked about retail, travel, office buildings. So, And then what's the possibility, or is there a consensus that 2022 earnings are going to be greater than 2019, and that's what we're discounting in the stock market right now. So all I'm saying is that I'm going to keep this this sheet around, and there's going to be days when there's going to be two positive on one side and three negatives on the other and a mixture of them, and it's going to create wide swings, I believe. So there we go. Um, Coronavirus erases guidance from 40% of the S&P. This is Allison Prang in the Wall Street Journal. And uh, it's understandable that managements are saying, we can't forecast this. But what that does is that the the sell-side analysts at the Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Stanleys of the world, they don't have information or as much information to put into their earnings estimates. And it creates uh, a more disparate range of earnings estimates. And so beats are probably going to be viewed with more enthusiasm and loss and misses are going to be viewed with more, uh, uh, more, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, more aggression for lack of a better term. So again, I think this is another thing that leads to the volatility of results, especially around earnings. And it's something that I want you to be uh, aware of. And which is why I'm looking at the VAXY, et cetera, uh, as I go through my charts this week. Uh, this is Bake's Take. Uh, didn't have anything really from the podcast world this week, but I had a, a fan question or a couple of fan questions that I really wanted to address. 
this is a text from Harry in Houston. He's a friend of my son, Jack, the handsome kid over here that was on the, the podcast last week. And uh, congratulations on graduation, Harry, and, grad- and on your, your move to Houston. It's a great town. Um, and, uh, uh, and Exxon is, is a, a fabulous company. Uh, you asked about geopolitical. We talked about the South China Sea, which I don't see a lot of people talking about. The Middle East has been quiet, but obviously any given weekend, there could be something that happens there that moves oil three, four, five dollars with no trouble. I've got a very interesting chart that I'm going to share with you that I think puts this in great historical perspective. COVID, uh, the demand hit is still unfolding. I've got a sixth month chart showing the craziness that's going on there. The game of chicken between the Saudis and Russia seems to be over. The at the last OPEC meeting, Russia said we're not going to we're going to produce whatever we want to produce, and the Saudis said that's cute. Uh, our cost is much lower than yours to produce this, and we're going to flood the market with oil, drive it down in, through the floorboards. And Russia, I think, said, okay, we get it, and, and we'll play nicely now. And there's been a nice bounce that's occurred, but that's obviously sub- subject to change. Regulation, haven't heard much, but as we get closer to November and the Biden platform comes out, it's probably going to be worse than Trump's for the oil industry. That just kind of makes sense. So be wary of that. Um, uh, Exxon was in the news. It's a slight negative, in my opinion. There's a, there's a, a, a fellow who is, um, uh, this is by Christopher Matthews, by the way. And Exxon is, is not writing down their assets, especially for their shale drillers. And in particular, XTO Energy, an acquisition they made uh, a few years ago. Uh, compare that to Shell writing down $22 billion, BP, Hess, Oxy, Chevron, uh, all of them have taken write-downs. And what that means is that they simply uh, mark down the balance sheet, the value of the asset that they either have built or acquired because they have a different price assumption that they have to make given what's going on right now. More on that uh, later. Uh, This fellow is Franklin Bennett. He is a securities law attorney. He's chairman of a professional society of oil and gas accountants. Uh, and he says that the XTO acquisition should be marked down by $17 billion and at least uh, $20 billion in other. Uh, the shale companies have written down $450 billion since 2010. You can see here what people have done. I mean, uh, they're responding to oil uh, collapsing and cutting dividends, writing down assets, cutting workforces, etc. But this drove me to this next chart, which, and I thought I knew the history of oil pretty well. Uh, it's a favorite area of mine. Um, uh, oil started in the 40s at roughly 10, under 10 actually. And uh, over you know many years hit 164 at the zenith in, in June of 08. And I think Exxon might have a point because when you look at that this over 70 years, it hasn't spent much time under $30. So if $30 is your assumption of how you value your reserves and your assets, might not be uh, uh, you know, an unreasonable thing to keep the assets on the books the way they are. That's beyond my pay grade, and I don't want to bore you to tears with, with that kind of accounting. But it, it's, uh, this chart was, was worth the question to put it in perspective. We seem to be building a pretty good base between 30 and 40 right now. And if you can make money, a project can make money there, things are good. Nat gas is a different story, natural gas. Uh, 18 was the peak in 05. Uh, we're down below two. Uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's an all-time low. 
and it's probably we're a victim of, of our own ingenuity or the shale drillers ingenuity uh, Chesapeake uh, which was a phenomenal stock for me back in the 90s is uh, is now zero and um, they were a pioneer in in shale drilling and but if you if if you're multiplying volume times price and price is collapsing your revenue is gone and, and then the debt just becomes too onerous and that's what's happened here uh, I showed this just to show you the last six months because you asked about the COVID effect. Well, this is the COVID effect. 60 down to negative 37. That's a bit of a, a, a futures oil trading anomaly, which we can go into if you want. But again, we're pretty steady here at, at uh, $30, $40 right now. Supply looks like it's picking up a little bit. So I think this is going to be a less volatile area as we go forward, I hope. Um and I just mentioned the, the uh, I put up the balance sheet here and the cash flow statement. Uh, it's a summary of, uh, of Exxon. They've got $1.3 billion in cash flow. It looks like they can sustain the dividend for now. Um, so I wouldn't be too, too worried about this. Oh, next question. Ashton from Villanova uh, asked about inflation given the Fed. And this was kind of interesting because I have my own you know preconceived notions about this. And then I, I started doing research and I said, OK, what are, you know, what are people saying about the, the recent Fed actions buying bonds of, of virtually every every type, putting it on their balance sheet, stimulating the economy? What are they saying about inflation? And then I looked at it. It's 2011. And so all the things they were worried about, you know, excessive credit expansion, higher money growth, excess demand pressures, overheating in the economy. Uh, raising inflation expectations and increasing the inflation rate, they were concerned about in 2011. And look what happened. The highest it ever got was 3%. The Fed would love to have 3% inflation right now. So this is what's happened with QE1, if you want to say that. And now we have the mother of all QE. And people are still saying that none of this is going to happen. Um, So I wouldn't... I wouldn't worry about inflation right now, but I sure as heck am paying attention to things like the uh, 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 inflation-linked treasuries and gold that give inklings of of accelerating inflation. Gold's acting really well, but but below what people would have expected given the money printing. But uh, I'm going to follow this for you as you go forward. If you have follow-up questions for me, Ashton, please uh, fire questions away to me, and I'd love to have a dialogue going back and forth. My suspicion is if you're asking about this, some of your uh, uh, friends and family are as well. Yeah, this is people, uh, uh, this fellow James Knightley, in essence, writing the same thing uh, about, about the current times, 2020, about 2011, and they're saying inflation is not going to be a problem. And uh, it remains to be seen. It rem- Meaning that they had the same concerns then and it wasn't then. And we, we saw have the same concerns Three, now. 3% was the max inflation right. in 2011 right. after unprecedented money printing. And now we're doing a multiple of that unprecedented money printing. Will inflation show up this time? Right. Given the slack in the economy and, and, and the, the demand that's been crushed, maybe not. Well, in that chart, it looks like it's it doubled from 2010 to 2011, right? Yes, yes. But, you know, the, the Fed's target inflation rate is two. So if they could pull something like this off going forward, I think they'd be thrilled. That would be great. I think the market would be thrilled. Yeah. And what happened over this period of time, market, the stock market screamed. 
from March of 09 till February of this year. Wow. So, anyway. Um, okay. We're going to wrap up. Uh, thank you very much. Please send me your questions and your thoughts and your criticisms and topics that you'd like me to cover. Uh, that's what's really going to be helpful with this. And uh, ideas that you, you see in your research, I'd love to know about them. I, I keep using this word crowdsourcing. I'd love to have this become a community where we throw ideas into, into the middle and pull out the ones we like and apply them to our, our own portfolios with uh, complete disclosure. And I think it'd be a lot of fun. And um, I think I, I can learn from everybody. Uh, the market has, has, has knocked my hubris out of me. And so here I am, a humble student and uh, producer of the show. Actually, Mike's the producer. I'm the host of the show. Uh, you're, the, anyway. you're the talent. Sorry? You're the talent. Yeah, but unfortunately, I realized that Anthony Bourdain said that, and that was, that was a euphemism for asshole. So <laughs> I, 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 I shy away from the talent moniker because I don't want to be the, uh, the aforementioned. Anyway, uh, please subscribe, review, and share my Bakes Takes podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred platform. Please also subscribe to my Bakes Takes YouTube channel. The audio is the same, but the charts that I reference are on the screen. Follow us on Twitter at Bakes Takes underscore and other social media. Please use your voice memo app, tape your questions, and email to bakes at Bakes Takes podcast or write if you prefer. I will also keep you anonymous if you'd like. Thank you for listening. Mike Wilson is my producer. Thank you as always. Have a great week. Uh, this is Bakes. And then at, uh, at the end, I've got Much Needed Levity. And I've got a bonus. So Much Needed Levity, uh, Monty Python, I'm a fan. Uh, my wife is not. I think it's more of a guy type of humor. But anyway, uh, uh, I've, I've included a link uh, to their top 10 moments in film, the Netflix documentary, which I think is an almost true story. I think that's what it is. I can't remember the title exactly. And I was floored. I learned that uh, Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd, at the height of their powers in 1974, financed the Holy Grail, which I think is kind of cool. And um, Elvis is a fan as well, which I also thought was interesting. And then as a bonus, uh, Larkin Poe, two ladies, sisters, Rebecca and Megan Lovell. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm a big fan. Uh, uh, voices are great. Uh, the harmonies. Uh, Megan plays slide. I play slide. And she makes me want to stop because she's so darn good at it. Uh, they did a very clever live stream on, on uh, Facebook that uh, was terrific at a bowling alley in Nashville. Uh, see their their Facebook group. They do fantastic covers. I got I was playing bell bottom blues on the way over here, and uh, they kill it. Uh, it's a great story, and I just applaud their ingenuity in a time of madness with 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 COVID. They're out there making music and getting in front of people as as best they can. Uh, so please check out their work. Uh, there's a link there on um, on the show notes, and I will see you next week. Thanks a lot. Bye now. Bye.